All right, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter five, or like Lana said, you can pull it up on the phone. Uh, we are going to be flying through the last two chapters of this, uh, this series, Growing Grace. I planned every chapter, one, two, and three, and four, for two weeks, and then Pastor Fail did chapters five and six one week. And so the reason uh, I did that was I failed. But what I'm gonna do is um, there's a lot in this text today and there's a lot I would love to say, uh, but because I won't be able to say all of that, on Tuesday night, uh, it's about 6, 6.15, my wife and I are going to come back online, Facebook Live on our Heritage uh, page and we're gonna dig in deeper to this. And if you look on the Church Center app or on the uh, version at the very bottom, there's a join us for Q&A with Ken and Tara, there's a submit questions there. And so if something comes up in the message today or if you're watching online and you have a question, you can fill that out and then we'll go through those on Tuesday night. And if you miss it because you're doing dinner or you're busy, uh, we'll always um, have that recorded so you can watch it later. So it should be good. Uh, Ephesians chapter five. I'm going to read the first couple verses and then we're going to dive in. Paul says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let's stop there. When Paul says, or when the Bible says, therefore, you always want to ask, why is it therefore? And so you go back. And so we go back to chapter four. And a couple weeks ago, Pastor Jake did a great job of explaining uh, what does unity in the body look like. And then last week, I talked about new life in Christ. We put off the old, right? We put off those old jail clothes. We put on the new, that new identity that we have, the righteousness of Christ. So Paul says, therefore, because of that, we now are to imitate God the Father. We are to now walk in love as Christ loved us. What does that mean? I love being a father. I've been a father for 20, how old, 22? 22 years. And when you're a parent, mother or a father, you experience all sorts of different types of seasons. You have the season of sleepless nights. You have the season of constant diaper changing. You have the season of watching them walk, the season of sending them off to school and the big backpack and watching them grow and watching them go into middle school through those awkward years and then going to high school and getting a driver's license and you're sitting next to them fearing for your life and then they graduate and so there's tears of joy and then they go off to college and then they graduate college and get engaged, which is where I'm at in my parenting. Um, and so there's all these different seasons of life. Some of your older parents, your kids have now had kids and your grandparent. My favorite age or my favorite season, and I've seen a couple of babies here today. I love when they're little, maybe three months and you hold them in your arms and you look down at them and they've got big eyes and then you open your mouth, right? And what do they do? They open their mouth. You hope they do. And then you stick out your tongue and they stick out their tongue and they're imitating you. And it's just this amazing connection that you have as a parent when your child is imitating the things that you're doing. And just a warning, parents, they keep imitating you. They keep watching. So watch what you do. Paul is saying, imitate God. Because God, for those of us who are believers, those of us that are children of God, we are to imitate him because he is our father. There's a really cool connection between Ephesians 1, verse 5, and Ephesians 5, verse 1. Look at how these are connected. It says in Ephesians 1, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons or sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. Ephesians 5, 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Maybe you're asking a question this morning, how do I become a beloved child of God? 
to imitate a God I do not know? How do I become a child of God? Well, if you remember this series, we spent two weeks talking about what does it mean to be far off? See, every single one of us before Christ were once aliens and strangers living in darkness way far off from God. But then we read Ephesians chapter two, verse four, that says, but God made a way, right? God came into the darkness. He sent his son, Jesus, in his grace and his mercy, he died for us. And for those that have put our faith and trust in him, we are now adopted sons and daughters of the king. We are beloved children. We are then to imitate the father. And we know that Jesus said, when you've seen me, you've seen the father. So we just go to God's word and we read the gospels. What did Jesus do? I saw a van out there that says WWJD. That used to be really popular back in like 90s, maybe? It was a while ago. It's not as cool anymore, you know, but it was cool then. And the whole premise was, what would Jesus do? Like, how do we reflect Christ? Like, how do we honor God in our life? And that's what Paul's saying here. Jesus did it perfectly. So we certainly can't do everything that Jesus did. But when we imitate the Father, when we follow after Christ, we at the very least are reflecting that light into the dark world as followers of Christ. And so while we'll never be able to do that perfectly, let's look at what Paul says, because he helps us answer the question of how do we live in this dark world as lights in this world? How do we live with those new clothes of righteousness and walk in light? He says, let me tell you two things first that you don't do. Ephesians 5.8 says, you were once darkness, but now you are light. How do you walk in the light? Well, you don't walk according to dark living. Ephesians 5.3 says, but sexual immorality, all impurity, covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper for the saints. He's going to make a distinction between dark living and walking in the light. And he uses this word for dark living, sexual immorality. If you've read the New Testament, you know that any time that the, the author, whether it's Paul or Peter, sexual immorality is like the first one that gets, gets listed. It always seems to be number one. That word sexual immorality actually comes from the word pornea, which is used in a broad sense to describe all types of sexual immorality, which is outside the, the guise of, or the guides of what God's perfect plan for sexuality is. Pornea, you probably would guess, is where we get the word for pornography. You would think that as an advanced society, 2,000 years later, that we would be able to figure out how to manage the struggle of sexual immorality. But here's the thing. They struggled with it 2,000 years ago. We struggle with it still today, don't we? This idea of sexual immorality, in my mind, or in my view, has become nuclearized. And I don't think that's a word, but if you can define it, it's a word. So what I mean is, it is just blown up. It's become overwhelming. It's huge. In the age of electronics, we have instant access to whatever we want. I mean, we're, we're talking about it in our announcements. I, I describe it like this. This device is like a loaded gun in the hand of a child. Because we can access every type of sexual immorality and perversion that is even known to man in a single swipe with our finger. It used to be that if you wanted to engage in things like pornea, you actually had to walk down the street to the temple. Or in the 80s, you had to walk to a gas station. Today, you just have to be in your room by yourself with a smart device. And these are great. Watch this. iPad, right? 
I love technology. I love getting the next best thing. But as great and amazing as, things, as these things are, we have to also recognize that it causes or can cause us to engage in all sorts of perversions in this world. And Paul is saying immorality, impurity, covetousness should not be named among the saints. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are to walk in the light, not according to the darkness and way you used to live. If you remember Romans 1 last week, I read Romans 1 and we talked about how they were given over to all sorts of different types of lusts of the flesh. And what happens is, is when sexual immorality runs rampant or it's uncontrolled, it will destroy you. And what I mean by that is sin always leads to death, but it is, it is something that will break apart a marriage. It will destroy or take down a pastor. Science even says that sexual immorality, certain types of it can actually change your brain. It can change the way that your brain thinks. And so this is serious stuff. This is why Paul says it should not be named among you. It's why the Bible says flee temptation. We live in a culture right now that I think many of us would say is insane in the membrane, as I said last week. It has given itself over to a debased mind. I don't get political very often, and I don't think this is necessarily a political thing, but we, we elevate things like the Grammys, which I don't advise watching because I've never seen a more vulgar act of pornea than ever, and we cancel Mr. Potato Head. It's like, this is, this is the craziness that our world is in. Well, let's set that aside. Paul is saying here, we should not be even named amongst things like sexual immorality. And it is hard for us to do in this world that we live in. Another example is Ephesians chapter five, verse four. He says, let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. This is a little bit of a follow-up to what he said last week. Let dark living is corrupt speech. Now I, I love to tell a good joke. Anybody love to laugh? I mean, I feel like laughing is something that God gave us. He gave us joy. So there's nothing wrong with laughing, enjoying a good time. I believe that when Jesus was sitting around the campfire with his disciples, a lot of laughing was going on. I just imagine that. I know it's true. God gave us the ability to, to have humor. But what Paul is saying is, is that corrupt talk, filthiness, vulgarity, crude joking. If you watch a comedian these days, immediately they go vulgar. It's just, it's natural. PG-13 movies, it's all usually sexually crude joking. And as Christians, we struggle with it because it's, it's funny. We laugh. We know we shouldn't laugh. And we, we, we we're balancing this. And Paul's saying, look, this is dark living. Christians should have nothing to do with that. And this is difficult. This is difficult to live in. Paul says, these are the ways of darkness. This is how you used to be. Not only did you live in darkness, but you were darkness. But now you are light. What are the consequences of living in the darkness? Paul tells us. Verse five, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or is covetousness, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sins of disobedience. This should sound kind of the alarm bell in our hearts. All sin is an offense to a holy God. The wages of sin is death. That is why the wrath of God is coming. Listen, God is a God of judge justice. He has to deal with sin. And every single person that's a Christian in this room, this is why we love the cross, because that is where our sin was satisfied. 
Otherwise, if we continue to live in darkness, if we stay in there, it says that there is no inheritance for us because we are in and stay in darkness. And this is where it gets really tricky in this really creative world that we live in. We live in a world where people try to convince us that what we're doing or what they're doing is not actually sin. We change the narrative. If we can change the narrative or we can redefine sin, then it doesn't sound as bad. So just to give you an example, this is kind of a, um, a broad stroke example, but instead of calling it a strip club, we call it a gentleman's club. That sounds okay. It's not really bad if nobody gets hurt. It's just a white lie. If it feels good, it's fine. It's not crude or vulgar, it's art. We, we change the narrative, and you know this happens, right? If we can just change that, then we can make it seem like it's actually not that bad. And then what happens is it just becomes normalized. And then if we try to live in a light as light in that world that has normalized sin, then we are the ones that are wrong. I see what's going on in our world, and I feel like Mr. Magatu. I'm taking crazy pills. Nobody knows what that movie is. I've said it three services. <laughs> but this is what darkness looks like. This is what happens. This is the world we live in. Ephesians 5, 7, and 8 says, Therefore, again, because of these things, do not become partners with them. He reminds us, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light. Praise the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And then Paul says, And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. You were once darkness, that's how you used to be, but now you are light, so walk in the light. There was a great song, right? I want to be in the light as you are in the light. There is fruit that comes from walking in the light. There is disaster and destruction when you stay in the dark. So, Pastor Ken, if I want to live differently in this world, if I want to try to stand out as light, what does that look like? Well, it's going to look like you're going to sound different, you're going to talk different, you're going to do different things. People are going to say, why does she pray? Why does he say those things? And many of us will say we try to do that, right? He says, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And some of us fail at this, and we fail a lot. But even those small sparks of light will glow in this dark world. So be light. If you live differently than this world, you will stand out. Young people in the room, I want to speak specifically to you. I was a youth pastor for 10 years, so I have a little bit of experience in this area. And I've had three teenagers. This mainly happens in sixth grade, seventh grade, and eighth grade, because this is where you're trying to find your identity. Who are you? Where do you fit in this world? High school students still deal with this. College students, you guys are beyond that, right? <laughs> We're trying to fit into this world. And so our friends... This is why who you hang out with is so important, because if you're hanging out with people that are living in darkness, they're going to love to bring you in to the darkness. It's hard to be light when everybody else is doing dark living. So you're trying to fit in, and you, you know you're not supposed to do this, but it's so tempting. And this is the thing about sin. The Bible actually says that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So a lot of times, what is evil, what is wrong, might seem like it's good. And you're just playing with it, or you're just dabbling with it, but it's this. This is what it looks like. Behind the corner is death. To all of us in this, mor this morning, not just junior high students, college students, standing up for what is right in dark places is hard. It's going to come at a cost. It could cost you a job because you decide that you're going to stand as light. We are called to imitate Christ. 
Therefore, because of what is true, Paul says in Philippians 4, 8, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is just, right? Whatever is pure, whatever is commendable, think about those things. This is how we are to walk. Paul says, and discern how Jesus, how, how God's word is calling us to do that. It's not something that we can just come up with on our own. We say, Lord, what's pleasing to you? WWJD, that's where that came from. How do we reflect Christ? Ephesians 5.11 says, take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. This is a really hard passage as I've tried to study that this week. I understand the first part. Take no part in the works of darkness. It's unfruitful. There's no fruit there for Christians. What does it mean to expose them? This past summer, Tara and I went out on a date. And uh, it was when the restaurants were starting to open back up. And so we went to one of our favorite restaurants called Thai Nine. We love Thai food. And uh, we went to Thailand, and so we're like, we got to keep eating Thai food. And uh, Tara gets a zero spice, I get a three spice, because it's hot. And uh, so we went to Thai Nine, and we ate, and then we walked out. And if you know where Thai Nine is, it's in the Oregon district. And if you walk that street, it's colorful. There's lots of stuff going on in that street. And as we were walking down the street, we got to the corner, and there were these guys that were setting up camp with these big signs of judgment, I won't say the things that were on them. And they had a megaphone and they were speaking loudly condemnation on a bunch of people that were at a bar across the street. And whenever I see these types of things, I, I really struggle because I'm always like, ah, oh, it's not the best. I don't feel like that's the best way to do that. Because there was just nothing profitable happening from what was going on. And I, I can't even describe to you or explain to you what was going on. But there was darkness and then there was guys that were trying to be light? I, I don't know. I mean, it was difficult to see. And, and so when I struggle through this text, what I mean is, is that how do we as Christians take no part in darkness, but expose darkness? It takes wisdom. It takes discernment. It takes, you know, love. It's difficult. And I think Christians may disagree on what the best approach is to expose sin in this dark world. But let me say this. When Christians decide that they are going to live for Christ, we put our faith in Christ, and now we're going to live for Christ in this dark world, two things are going to happen. Either one, when you live as light, it's either going to make people hate you and they will reject it. They will try to stomp out the light, which is a rejection of the gospel. Or maybe through the power of the spirit, they will believe. They will see the light that is in you and they say, what is it about that person? Because walking and imitating Christ shines in dark places. This has eternal significance. It has eternal significance. Some, someone once told me that you might be the only Jesus that someone ever meets. When the love of Christ illuminates the darkness, it will pierce dark hearts of men and women. I think that's why Paul says a challenge to every single one of us this morning. Therefore, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. He's going to say that the days are evil. There are people outside. There may even be people here today that are lost, or they're searching, or they don't understand. There is no time for the church to be asleep at the wheel. So we need to awaken. And look, Christ will shine on you. Sin loves the darkness. Sin loves the darkness. You know this. We battle the flesh, we battle the spirit, even as Christians. 
Sin in the world, that's just normal. That's how they live. We battle temptations. When you as a believer give in to sin, when those temptations come and you maybe take a step back into the darkness, sin would like nothing more to make camp in those places in your heart and just be, be quiet, grow, plant down. And the longer the, you let sin make room in your heart, the more painful it is when it gets exposed. That's why Paul says you should have nothing to do with it. Exposing sin by shining light on, of truth on it does a couple of things. It will transform an unbeliever and it will expose darkness even in a believer's heart. That's what causes us to repent. When I was in college and I was living for myself, I knew that if I opened up my Bible that was in my room that I didn't want to look at would convict me. So I closed it and I just put it in a place where I wouldn't see it. Because that's what the word of God does. It convicts us. It reveals those dark places in our lives. Are you running from the light? Or are you running to the darkness this morning? If you love your sin, let me just be very clear. If you love your sin and you remain in your sin, there is no inheritance in the kingdom of God. But there is good news. The gospel of the light of Jesus Christ pierces those dark places and makes you alive. Believe. Turn from those dark places. The apostle Paul says it like this, or excuse me, the apostle John. In chapter one, he says, the true light, which is Jesus, gives light to everyone and was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But... To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This is where that adoption comes. Who are born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, but by the will of man, by, but of God. This is what happens to someone that has believed in Jesus Christ, has run from the darkness that leads to death, and runs to the light. This is Jesus. There is life. There is truth. And it's not easy to do this. Once we've put our faith and trust in Christ, it's not like everything gets easy. It gets harder because you're light in a dark world. And so Paul says this, look carefully then how you walk, verse 15, not as unwise, but making the best use of the time because the days are evil. They are. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Then he gives us an example. Do not get drunk with wine. That is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Believers in the room, as you imitate Christ, as you're exposing light into those darkness, he's saying, you got to be careful how you walk. And I love what the psalmist says in 119. It says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Why do we think that we can go to those dark places without this? We need to know what it says so that when we go to those dark places, we have the lamp that will light our path. How do we walk carefully? How do we walk wisely? How do we make the best use of our time? Are you in God's word? Next week, I'm going to say that this word is actually a sword. It's an exciting passage to end our series in Ephesians chapter 6. His word lights our path. It instructs us. It guides us. We have to avoid foolishness if we're going to understand what the will of God is. And so what Paul does is he gives us an example of what foolishness is. Foolishness is getting drunk. I don't know if you know this, but when you drink too much, you're, you get drunk. You start to lose control. The world makes it look fun, right? Spring break, everybody's going on spring break now. It looks a lot of fun. And, and maybe at first it is kind of fun, but there's something around the corner 
See, when you lose control because you have inebriated yourself, you can't speak the words that you want to speak. You can't do the things you want to do. You can't drive. Your mind is not clear. And when the world portrays something like drunkenness as fun, we understand that, no, it's not fun. It's just numbing the darkness. Now, alcohol is not a sin. If you grew up hearing that alcohol is a sin, I'm just telling you, it's wrong. God created wine, alcohol, beer. They're not wrong in in and of themselves, but it's the abuse, it's the idolatry, it's the excessive use of that that is sinful. What Paul is saying here is he's making a distinction between being out of control, and that could be other things. It doesn't have to just be alcohol. It could be sexual sin. It could be anger. If you're out of control, you're not living by the Spirit. He is saying, be filled continually by the Spirit. Self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit. You can't have self-control if you're drunk. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the fruits of one that is living by the Spirit. There is no self-control. There is no goodness when you're face down on the floor in your own puke. To walk in love and to imitate Christ is to continually be filled by the Spirit. So here's what happens. This is what's really awesome about the Spirit. Paul says, being filled by the Spirit produces three things that helps us grow in grace. It produces worship, it produces thanksgiving, and it produces this thing that cannot happen in any other way, and it's loving submission to one another. Look at 519. He says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. He goes on to say in verse 20, giving thanks always and for everything to God, Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. How does your heart and your spirit fill when you come into this place and you hear the church singing? I'll admit, sometimes I cry. The spirit in me just brings this joy. This is why it's hard to be online. And and we know some people can't be here, but some of you who were online for a while, you know the difference between being with the body of Christ, singing with the body. It says addressing one another in Psalms. It's just hard to do that when you're watching online. And so it's good to be able to be together and we can't wait until we're all together to be able to experience the spirit moving in this place. Sometimes words don't do justice what our hearts feel. So we have to sing it. Sometimes, and and this service is great, sometimes you have to clap because it just, you're joyful. Sometimes you have to shout. It could be a psalm. It could be a hymn. We sang a hymn today. It could be other songs. Let me just say this. Paul is not laying a framework today for a specific type of worship leader at your church. If you find a church where everybody agrees on style and song selection, I want to congratulate you (laughs) because you're dead. You're in heaven. Amen? It's just true. There's something special about a church when the spirit is alive, and I believe that's happening here, and we get to sing together. We address each other in songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. Those watching online, we love you. Sing louder so we can hear you. It produces thanksgiving. It is the natural response of someone that is spirit-filled to have thankfulness. A spirit-filled person is not complaining or murmuring. If you're not being thankful or if for whatever reason you don't feel like your spirit's thankful, I want you to pick up your Bible and go back to Ephesians chapter 2 and remind yourself that at one point, oh yeah, 
I was dead. You can't complain or murmur or gossip if you're dead. You're dead. Read Ephesians chapter two, verse four. But God in his mercy with his great love made you alive. I tell you what, that brings me joy in my spirit and that makes me thankful. I'm thankful out of what God has done for me. That is my fuel. That is my motivation. A spirit-filled person gives thanks. The final thing, and this is something that I'm just going to go quickly through, uh, which is why we're doing this talkback session. The final thing is a spirit-filled person is filled with submission. Paul's going to give us three examples of what love, submitting in love and submission looks like. He's going to talk about marriage. He's going to talk about parents and children. He's going to talk about slaves and masters, which I think is talking about work. Some of the three most important things that we do in life, if we ever get married, our family, and our work. He's going to talk about what does it mean to submit in love. Look at Ephesians 5, 22. It says this, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. I love these verses. They're beautiful. These are amazing, sweet verses about marriage. And yet at the same time, these same verses can be abused, can be misunderstood and confused. There's a lot of abusive marriages because people take these verses in the way that they shouldn't. Last week, I made a statement. We exchange the truth for a lie if we say that marriage is anything other than a man and a woman, one man and one woman. The reason why is because Ephesians says at the end of this passage that marriage is a picture of the gospel. And so if we get marriage wrong, we're in danger of getting the gospel wrong. So we have to understand what biblical marriage is. So what we might say today or what I might say to the world that's dark, it might sound unloving. And to what the world might see or culture, it might say that's hateful. But I'm not afraid because this is God's word and we stand on it. So if you are imitators of God and you walk in love, then we must expose and call things when they're not true. But hear me, at the same time, Christian, we don't take our lightsaber and annihilate people with it with that and leave them on the road bleeding. We love them back to Christ with the gospel. We have to understand that the world is confused, and so we love them, and we expose sin where it is, but we love them because that is what restoration, reconciliation is. We are ambassadors for Christ. This idea of marriage and gender and family confusion in our world is true, and I don't believe it's a cultural issue. It's a spiritual issue. So we need to know what we believe as a church, and we believe in the biblical foundation of marriage here. If we stand, if we will not stand up and fight against that, the enemy will get a stronghold, and I think it already is. So let me say this, singles in the room, marriage is not the goal. Christ is. Submitting to Christ. Our loyalty and our love start and end with Christ. Marriage is a gift. It's an amazing gift. It's a picture of the gospel, something that many of you either share now or one day will share, but it is only temporary. 
Marriage in this life is only temporary. And by temporary, I don't mean that it's not sacred. I don't mean that it's not permanent, intimate, mutual, and exclusive. It's temporary in the fact that it is just a shadow of the ultimate marriage of Christ and the church, which we all are going to share in as children of God, which is beautiful and amazing and a mystery. The question that I want to end with today is what does submission then look like for both a man and a woman? What does submission in love look like? All of it comes under the umbrella of Ephesians 5.21. You can't get this one wrong or you can't forget it because then you'll get the marriage submission wrong. Ephesians 5.21 says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Everything that we do in our relationships with others, first as believers, starts with our submission out of reverence for Christ. That is what living by the Spirit means. We are living in submission to the one who is creator and king. So if you want to ask a question to yourself and evaluate, am I walking in the light? Am I loving like Christ? Well, let me ask you this. Is your life in submission to Christ? Ask that question first. Are you living in reverence to the king? Because if you don't first submit to Christ, you're going to have a really hard time as a wife submitting to your husband. Or husbands, you're going to have a really hard time loving as Christ loved. Both will get messed up. When, when Paul says submit, he's talking about this idea of arranging under. It's not, not that they're not equal. My wife is my co-heir. Co-heir. Submission looks like good soldiers surrendering up control. It's putting aside maybe your own selfish desires and agendas to submit to someone else for the good of the both or for others. And so Paul says, submission in love looks like husbands loving your bride as Christ loved the church. Amen. Submission in love looks like wives submitting to their husbands as, Christ, as the church submits to Christ. That's what it says in scripture. The whole life of Christianity is submission. And so... I could do an hour on this, but I'm just going to give you an illustration. And if you have questions, use your device. Tara, come on up here. Scoot over there a little bit. I'm called to Golgotha love this woman. If you don't know what Golgotha is, that's the, the rock on which Jesus was crucified. That was, Cal that was Calvary. It was called the skull. What is Golgotha love according to Ephesians 5? It is love that takes a crown of thorns and bleeds for the church. A husband is to bleed, take the pain, take the blows, protect his bride. Golgotha love is taking a spear to the side. Golgotha love is being willing to sacrifice myself for her. Golgotha loves that means that I'm going to love her and I'm going to, men, listen to your bride. Hear their heart. This is the type of love that Christ is demonstrating. He says, if you want to be married, men, you need to love like Christ loved the church. Let me ask you a question, Tara. Would you be willing to submit to that kind of love? Absolutely. Of course. Will you dance with me? All right, so this is, all right, so a marriage, a biblical marriage looks like two people in a beautiful dance where I lead and she follows. Sometimes I make mistakes and sometimes I say things I shouldn't and I'm like, I abuse that headship. I'm like, Tara, go get me some pretzels. 
<laughs> that <laughs> headship doesn't mean I abuse that power. It means I'm willing to do whatever it takes to protect her, to guide her, to love her, to sanctify her. And then she gladly follows that. She wants to be a part of that because she respects that just as the church respects and follows Christ. So let me just say this. Thank you. <laughs> I wish I could say I'm an amazing husband and I do right all the time. But I can't. But Christ did for us. And so if we reflect that as best as we can, and we follow that as best as we can, this looks a lot more like the gospel and it shines a light in this dark world. Let us submit first to Christ. And then as we follow in that, whether it's in marriage or in our families, in our workplaces, people will see Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, um, we are in awe of your love for us. We did not deserve it. We were running from you. We were far off. We were aliens. We were strangers. We were sinning. We were doing what we wanted to do. But God, in your mercy and in your love, you sent Jesus down as the light of the world. And the Bible says that those that believed in the light became children of God. And so I pray that that is true for every single person in this room. For those that maybe are still trying to hold on to those dark places of their sin, I pray that they would confess that even right now and say, God, I am sorry. For those of us who maybe are living in sexual immorality or those of us that are using or saying corrupt things out of our mouth, God, forgive us. That is our old self. Help us to put on the new. God, you make graves into gardens. You make dark hearts, hearts of light. Father, when we as husbands mess up and we don't lead well, forgive us. When we struggle to submit to one another, God, forgive us. Help us to go back to what is true. Help us to go back to your faithfulness as we sang today and give you all the praise and worship and be thankful as we submit to one another in love. And it's in your name we pray, amen. Would you stand as we sing?